When it comes to the conflict with Israel and Hamas, we're in a situation where before we can say, hey, here's what this means, we need to know exactly what happened. And we're early enough in this that we don't fully have the details of exactly what's going on here. So in this episode, we're looking at the things that can generally be said about it while understanding that there will be more details that will come to light that will give us more insight into what this means in the long run. But in the meantime, we do have enough from a biblical perspective to know how it is that we ought to be thinking about conflict in the world and in our lives. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. So these are sobering days from a global perspective, Nathan. I mean, that is, that's been the case for a while. But of course, I think everybody is thinking about the events that have transpired in Israel and starting on Saturday with the attacks, which have claimed many lives. I think the death toll was at somewhere like 700. Likely it's going to climb thousands wounded. Many people also taken hostage, including women, young children, and the elderly. And this, of course, this was perpetrated by Hamas. And so here we find ourselves again, Nathan, in over our heads, in the sense that this is an extraordinarily complex series of events that are unfolding. They have to do with a conflict that has been raging for years and years. But I do think there are a few salient points that we can talk about here without getting too speculative. And this is probably as good a time as any to say once again that before you form serious judgments on ongoing, you know, on what's going on and before we, well, I should say, let's, let's just speak in we terms, all of us. And before we rush to conclusions, there's always, there's so much pressure always to publicize what we think and say it immediately. Let's process for a little while. It's as more and more information comes to light, we're going to learn more and more about what's going on. But I think it's also a, a good check on on us, on all of us, right? Just to, to have some humility as we look at this, because we've got, I mean, again, this, this, there are complex factors involved with what's going on here. And so, well, let but me summarize did, what you're saying there, I think, is just to, to say that before yeah. we can before we can say what something means, we have to know more exactly what exactly happened. And we're still in the early stages here of trying to figure out exactly. I mean, so th- th- there's enough information out there that you can you know get a pretty good a- idea of what happened, how it happened, and the details and some of these things and who used what and who backed what and who supported what and what technology was hacked where and who masterminded, you know, all of that will take a little bit of time to come to the forefront. And until it does, we won't have all the tools necessary to say, to think about what the broader or more long-term implications of this actually are. So that's the, we're just putting a timestamp on the time in which Cameron and I are speaking about this to say, we're quite likely uh, solvable here in some of our analysis, but there are still themes and things within that we can encourage ourselves and caution each other as we think uh, process how to think through. I mean, I think some of the factors we can state out loud here, again, in case some of our listeners haven't kept abreast of all of the information, the the wall, well, the fence protecting the Israel border from, from, Gaza, from the Gaza Strip is 
from a technological standpoint, one of the most sophisticated that there is. The surveillance on there is really impressive. This this fence can detect even when a ladder is lightly placed against it. So, I mean, part of what had to have happened was there there was a cyber attack, likely. And so that leads to speculation. Who who perpetrated the cyber attack? And again, most likely, this is this is Hamas. But of course, when you talk about Hamas, we're also talking about a group backed by Iran as well. And so this is where... I, because this is a a globalized world, for better or for worse, these incidents are never isolated in the purest sense. You have these alliances and these connections. And of course, highly, highly controversial politically, the U.S. has been involved for years and seriously since the Obama administration in the Iran deal. And of course, some of you will not have missed the fact that the U.S. has recently given... $16 billion to Iran. And again, Nathan, you had a helpful way of, of putting this. We certainly do seem to, in, in America, we, we have a penchant for short-term strategies to try to get mm-hmm. us out of hot water so that we can just proceed with business as usual. And of course, you know, you could send a, a, an astonishing amount of money like that to a nation like Iran and say, well, this money is earmarked for these causes and not for, you know, the development of nuclear weapons or anything else like that. But the cynical, you know, side of, I think pretty much everybody will say, yeah, okay. <laughs> and that's clearly probably not what's going to happen. So well, there's, there's you have all these factors playing out. Yeah. There's a weird calculation that takes place on from America's perspective. And you can look at this back through almost any Middle Eastern engagement, uh, particularly when you're looking at Afghanistan and Pakistan and U.S. funding of what was going on there. There's a sense in which this is a crude analogy, but there, you know, it's kind of like paying a, your toddler a million dollars not to throw their spoon on the floor, where there's a sense in which you say, look, we're going to pay you a bunch of money not to cause trouble yeah. because it would cost us more time and money and lives to sort out the trouble that you're causing. So if we give you enough, will you just behave in our best interest? And that's you know, however you think about that tactic, that seems to be kind of the way that we've played this. But then you run into trouble when what happens when you give somebody a pile of money and they are still ideologically committed to things that are the opposite of your best interest and they don't have exact control. Like, it's not like democratically elect Hamas or decide who's in charge of your country. So even if you're looking at this from, you know, your average Palestinian's perspective, um, they have a lot to lose and perhaps not a lot to gain uh, for the for the outcome of some of these um, kind of geopolitical, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it ends up being the case that in our foreign policy, speaking as an American, we find ourselves on both sides of conflicts where we're um, in an awkward situation of funding people who are attacking our allies but the amount of money that we pump into all these other countries is kind of our way of having, in our own minds, some sort of seat at the table or some sort of influence in the way that this works out. So you're kind of, it's a double-edged sword and it's a dangerous game. And we're just, you know, here's the latest iteration of that bubble popping in the direction that isn't favorable to um, our allies. And I think from a, I mean, from a strategic standpoint now, Israel finds itself caught between a rock and a hard place because given the 
the work that the U.S. has done with Iran, they can't. They're, they're probably. It's, it doesn't make much sense for them to retaliate directly against Iran. So they could. I mean, and if if they were to go after another major group like Hezbollah, Hezbollah is incredibly powerful. They find themselves then vulnerable in multiple conflicts. So what's likely going to happen is sadly. A ser- but even even attacking direct retali- retaliations on the Gaza Strip right now are complicated by the fact that they that Hamas have multiple hostages from Israel, mm. and yeah. so well, and, but also they're going to the, want to I mean, prioritize so, the recovery efforts there. But what's Hamas's play in this too is that anything that Israel, and this has been I think you know the last day, what a lot of your political commentators have been saying is basically the the way that this works out, and this is helpful I think particularly if you're a younger listener listening to this, is this is not like the first rodeo here in this conflict. This is not, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a sense in which you hear the word unprecedented and that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, this is more coordinated and it's a larger scale. Well, but not even that. You, if you look back through the history of this conflict, this is a type of a thing. It's not a totally new thing um, at play right. here. But basically, the U.S. will come out, Biden will make a statement saying we support Israel. Israel will basically do it at once for about two weeks, and then there will be massive international pressure for Israel to show restraint. Um, and whatever Israel does will be photographed and used as massive um, propaganda isn't the right word. But, I mean, you have an Arab world who's very interested in being anti-whatever Israel does. So Israel can't win on this one. I say they can blow up a bunch of buildings and make themselves feel better about it a little bit, but even that is going to be used as, look, you have this... Uh, Western-backed Middle Eastern aggressor who's occupying somebody else's land. That's a whole other, you know. <laughs> the way the history of that one gets played out is curious to hilarious. I either laugh or cry about that, but um, it's not a good look for anybody, no matter what happens, particularly the the just your average Palestinians. Yeah, and I think one one thought that has has come to mind here recently Nathan is that we're the, we're talking a lot about warfare these days in our day-to-day lives we think of the war in Ukraine being waged and the the kind of just no holds barred strategies being employed by Russia in that conflict and then these these escalating tensions so this is this is once again part of our everyday discussions and it brought to mind one of the one of the many provocative things that Stanley Hauerwas has said, and this is this is worth I think processing here a little bit because so Hauerwas challenges vigorously the notion that warfare is inevitable. That warfare is distinct from conflict. Conflict, of course, of course, is is inevitable. Human beings are fallen. We're going to argue. We're going to fight. We're going to have disagreements. But Hauerwas has challenged the notion, and this is part just to bring in some of. We might have to bring in some some information here about just war theory, just to to make this make this clear. But kind of one of the assumptions of a just war of just war theory is that war is in some way inevitable. And also, by the way, it, it's worth pointing out. Nathan, you point this out quite a bit. If you are actually a consistent just war theorist, almost 
no war that we look at in the history books fits the meets the the criteria and you know is qualifies as a just war so it's well that's but that's a historical it's perspective. very stringent in the in the time in which the war is initiated it's always justified in the mind of the person justified correct so, yeah that's so, right so it's it's kind of a twofold thing there everybody always justifies the war and historically when you look back at it you say you know was that a good reason mm -hmm. for that yeah who knows so why am i bringing in something academic and abstract right here. Well, I think it's probably worth us thinking along these lines again, since we find ourselves having these conversations more frequently. But what I wanted to, what I wanted to bring in from Hauerwas was this. So he argues, no, in the modern world with what the technology that we have, war is no longer an, an inevitability. It need not be the case. This was not true when you went back to martial societies. So the ancient Near East, in those contexts, war was an inevitability and it was, it was a brutal necessity, but not so anymore in our world. And he basically is saying that when we talk about, oh, just be a realist, that is a failure of the imagination. Hang on. Time now, out. it might... Yeah, yeah. So let me... Definitely time of, out. Of the things that I think that Howard Voss says that are interesting, this is one where I think he's out over his keys. Um, and the reason I say that is because there was this other theologian named Jesus who said there will always be wars and rumors of wars. And so there's a mm -hmm. a sense in which even in our... Um, you know, like to take a step back and think about our development of the concept of just war theory, that was within a theological tra tradition that was looking at the legitimate means mm -hmm. from a religious perspective of why or how you could initiate a war. I'm not saying that there weren't Greco-Roman versions of this, but in the Western conception of it, does that same the, like does that same practice still apply to secular nations in the same way? And given the fact that you know, so Howard Voss is also putting a lot of you know weight and pressure on the concept that technology will help us out here which is a little rich in the context of a conflict that just happened because of the failure of technology. So I can imagine all those questions. Come That's why I bring it back. up. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So let me just make sure that the objection is clear before you, you respond to those. And go while I say, well, and also key. let me give, well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me give Howard his due here though. Cause he, he would completely and totally concede. Yes. Jesus's words there on, on conflict, on the sword, the inevitability of all of that. No, but what he's... So let me be clear on what he's he's not saying. He's not saying that there will be... There will like... We will one day reach a day where there will be no more war. He's... That would be, I think... That'd be the height of naivete, and I don't... And he wouldn't say that. He's saying that it is with... It is theoric, theoretically within our grasp given our technological capabilities to make warfare as it's been known historically obsolete. And so when we just blithely assume, so no, it's technically, so that's what, no, let me just stop there. That that's a, that's a strong statement still, even that's if I, when I put those qualifications around it. Right. Well, so, there's the heart of let's bracket the heart of humanity for just a second. And again, I, I'm bringing this up because I think it's helpful for us to start thinking about the ethics involved in warfare, because we're, we're going to need to, this is not to our listeners. 
I hate to say it, we are hopeful realists, but we are also realists. This is not going away. And it's not <laughs> this, these conflicts, these global scale conflicts are not going to de-escalate. At, you know, I'm not a prophet, neither is Nathan. And I, I don't think we're being too speculative when we're saying we, no. we are poised. Jesus was. I mean, but we are certainly, if you look at global events right now, we are poised for some very, very major things to happen here. And so instead of, we want to be proactive in in our habits, and that includes our thinking. And part of what we want to do on Thinking Out Loud is, is think out loud like Christians. So let's think out loud like Christians about warfare here. That's why I'm bringing this up. So I want to, I'm just trying to say that to, to illustrate that I think this is deeply practical. Part one of 72. So, great. yeah. Right, <laughs> right. But part of what happened here is that technology failed. I mean, it manifestly failed. It failed in, in several different senses, Nathan. It failed, first of all, in on a most basic level, to protect it failed to protect the way that it was assumed it would protect, but it also was was it didn't it didn't eradicate. I mean, it turns out the that these people when they breached that wall and when they, when they, when they came in, they just this was very brutal and old fashioned and hideous. They walked around slaying people in the streets. This this looked a very this looked very much like quote in quotes traditional warfare and so there was a failure to protect there was an overestimation and overconfidence in the technology which i think is by the way we can say that with full sympathy that i think that's very understand understandable this technology in israel is is probably some of the most sophisticated in the world custom made and specially designed in israel for these very kinds of events but it just it shows you we're not invulnerable in the same way and i rem i keep remembering one of the points that mersheimer professor mersheimer forget his his i forget his first name now let's go with john. university of chicago professor who <laughs> john mersheimer who yeah we'll call him john who found himself going viral years after he gave a lecture on russia and ukraine but one of the one of the points that he made is that Vladimir Putin thinks like a 19th century military strategist. He thinks in in kind of he thinks in terms of global, you know, power and seizing of territories, very traditional and he said the reason so many people have a hard time grasping that is because that in in America in in Washington DC everybody thinks like a 21st century politician. Well, this is again one of those instances where I would say a lot of modern people in developed nations do think like 21st century politicians, and they do think along the lines of a kind of a Stanley Hauerwas. Theoretically, we're approaching a, play, a day where we can make this kind of stuff obsolete, but that is not at all how the Muslim imagination works. And, I mean, it, very much thinking in terms of territory, national pride, and, of course, a full-blown theocracy. And this conflict goes. I mean, this this is this is a conflict that has such incredibly deep roots, and I think we just we need to bring that in here too, Nathan, because 
as Americans, we're just we tend to be so ah historical. We just tend to think, well, what possible advantage could this be? I mean, what about the people in Gaza who are suffering under this regime of Hamas? It's true they are. I think the figure is something like one month's wages pays for a year of of you know uh, of basically wages the cost in Israel of living in the Gaza. Gaza family for a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's those are astonishing facts to rattle off. But again, the motivations of people and their religious outlook can be drastically different from a 21st century Amer- American who thinks like a, you know, mostly has a consumer approach to just by default oh, hang on a second. to hang the on way a they second. look at life and, and thinks, yeah. But, but that's not, so there are elements of Americans that, and we saw this, I think, um, in the surprise of the 2016 election, there were people who said, why would people vote against their own economic best interest? And so if you're reducing your culture essentially into economic categories, your mind is always going to be blown by a group of people who would do something that would obviously be bad for them financially. But there, are, it turns out humans mm-hmm. have other motivations for doing things than like long-term economic welfare and stability particularly if you're religiously motivated to think think that something is right or wrong, then you can kind of say, well, who cares how the cards fall? This is the right thing for me to do. So I would still say that there's a healthy dose of Americans that think along that line too, but you're absolutely right. Kind of, I think in the upper echelons of our political and fiscal system, where there is a sense in which that economic motivation um, is the end all be all. And that just simply isn't the case for the vast majority of the world. And then we end up being surprised when people don't play by our set of rules, which are the minority perspective. So I think it's safe to say that we're, we're not, I, I mean, at least to, in my estimation, Nathan, our technological advances are not going to bring us to a place where war is even theoretically obsolete. I think with every new technology comes a whole a whole list a laundry list of new ethical challenges we may and it may seem that certain certain strategies of warfare are you know for instance you know we don't have we may not have trench warfare and all of that but again if you, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine right now well, I was going to say except for it's happening doesn't right now look, <laughs> It it looks it doesn't look a whole lot different from some of those battles in World War World War One. So I think, and again, this is not. I'm not saying this to to you know to crush hopes or to or or to be needlessly pessimistic, but I think one of the one of the prerequisites for being a responsible Christian person in the world is to face reality. And we live in a world where it's it's very easy to even I mean even now with all of this going on I mean we're still in a we're we're largely untouched in our practical lives by what's what's taken place many of us are and we can turn a blind eye to it and we can just ignore it but I think it's helpful for us to to face reality in the sense of what the actual possibilities are and what human limitations are as well and so we need to think about what. What yeah? What is the Christian comportment in times of war and and global conflict? If there isn't some kind of technological 
salvation in the mix. And yep. you know, salvation is too strong of a word sometimes. But we do often no. look at technology in, in a kind of magical way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good tool for Savior. Let me let me bring in another angle Correct. here and see if, if this starts to help us clarify. What is it about human tendency, and I don't know if this is American Christian perspective, like to always be looking for the world to end? And I'll, t- I'll give you a story. So I remember one time, mm-hmm. you know, like there are times of the year where you can, or times of day where you can see the moon pretty clearly in the daytime. So white moon against the blue sky. I mean, it happens pretty pretty frequently i mean maybe some people don't look up that much in life and have never noticed that but you know it's often fairly normal i mean it's not like if a you weird don't look thing up, when you stand it's great but you don't yeah <laughs> like, like you can sometimes see the moon in the daytime um and my dad who dots his grave was telling the story of a time in which you could see the moon during recess and one of the little kids ran by was like just i'd never noticed this before he was like you can see the moon during the daytime and the other little kid turned around and said yeah, my mom says when that happens, the world's about to end. Now, what, what, why mm. you would tell that to your child is an interesting thing. But also, we're somehow like predisposed to think that all ripples in you know our perception of reality are uh, triggers of the end of all things. And so, I want to say a thing or two here. You're talking about the Christian comportment in this. Is one is that this is probably not a signal of the end of the world. Um, you know, my, I've, I've joked before about, you know, my brothers and I had this thing that every day when we woke up, when we woke up for a while, we would predict that that was the last, day, that was the end of the world because then it wouldn't be the end of the world because no one knew the day or the hour. So our theory was, is that if you prophesied that it was, it certainly <laughs> wouldn't happen on that. So, you know, give us a break on our seven-year-old theology. Way to save us. Yeah. Well, we got you covered. Um, yeah. no longer doing that, but there's, there's a sense in which, uh, another, another phrase or way of looking at this, that my <laughs> borrow a phrase from my grandpa that he called groundhog Christianity. So you think of a groundhog, it uh, hmm. spends its day close to its hole. And every time it sees a shadow, it hears a noise that jumps down in the hole. Um, there are strands of Christianity that sort of seem to function like that of like, every time there's a shadow or an unidentified noise, you jump down in the hole. And that does not seem to be fear. Not I'm with you always, even to the end of the age as a, as a healthy Christian way of seeing the world. So yes, you have to recognize the dangers that are at play there. And probably a lot of groundhogs survive because they jump in their holes quickly, but Christians aren't groundhogs. There's your quote for the day. Um, so there's a sense in which you there's can look quote. at the, un- yep. <laughs> you can look at the unknown and you can be sad by it. You can be perplexed by it. You should certainly pray for the people who are involved in the brokenness and the conflict. But there's an odd sense in which we tend to to hyper-individualize global conflict by asking the question of what does it mean for me that A, doesn't do justice to the complexity of the issue. Yeah. It doesn't properly lament the brokenness and the tragedy that's happening in other people's lives. It doesn't put us in a place of intercession on behalf of other people in the world. It doesn't cause us to think about our own implications and our own practices that are a part of developing or generating that conflict. It just makes it think about like, well, is this the end of it for me? And so I would say there's a whole lot of work to be done, even if, you know, everything is about to fly apart. That doesn't mean that you just sit Mm -hmm. back and chew your fingernails in fear. Uh, That's just not how Jesus approached the cross or any of his disciples 
have approached any of life or disciple making or anything. So I think there's a, a sense in which you can, A, let's be really, really careful on who we're listening to and all of the quote unquote the theological takes on this. Um, who's thinking clearly here? And then one of the ways to judge whether or not that's an accurate interpretation of whether is whether or not it reminds you of the goodness of God and the call that he has on your life and the hope that you have in the midst of suffering and conflict. And it leaves you with a reassured peace in the presence of pain and chaos. If the way that you're approaching it leaves you with that, then I would say that is a Christ-like way. If it leaves you cowering or fearing like, oh, we're wasting money here or we voted for the wrong person or this administration's at fault for this, all of those things might not be, might be true, but you didn't get there theologically. Mm -hmm. uh, so recognize that and, and be cautious there that the, just because there's a global, you know, or some sort of conflict that plays out in terms that even use biblical concepts like Israel doesn't mean that everything that Jesus said flies out the window. Um, small one. Yeah, and I think that gets to, I think a big point I want to make kind of on riding on your coattails there, Nathan, is that we just don't know from a human perspective how this is all going to play out. And that's why, that's part of, I think for, for you and I, Nathan, maybe we've never stated it in these terms, but I think that might be why sometimes you and I harp on about let's not start you know, jumping to all sorts of conclusions and formulating all kinds of opinions on matters that we don't yet understand or that we, you know, that we can't know completely. And if you look at some of the, the news sources and if you turn to, you know, political analysts and all of that, they are going to talk like sports commentators and they're going to speak very confidently about geopolitical strategies. And, you know, they'll have a lot of insights to offer but sometimes in those conversations, what's disconcerting and, and just a little bit strange is people will speak with such confidence. I can tell you, and here's what's going to happen. And then you're going to see this and this and this. But here's the thing. No, we don't know. We don't know how this transpires. And some, some of us come from theological traditions that really crave a degree of certainty. We are not guaranteed by our Lord. I mean, Every. specifically with regard to the end times, no man knows the hour or the day. And if Let's that is indeed true, <laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> but if that is indeed true, you know, hopeful, waiting, waiting for, in hope for our Lord's return is, is an act of faith as well. And we can't get around that. We need, you know, faith will be required of us. And that's part of what Christian hope, that's part of, I mean, Christian hope consists in part of that faith we place in our Lord and his return. It's a point, it was a point of tension for the biblical writers who, you know, frequently had to address this in their letters for people who are taunting and saying, oh, Jesus is coming back. Where is he? Where is he? People are still saying that to this day. And so I think that impulse, which is a deeply human impulse just for certainty and security, it gets it you know it gets kicked into high gear when we see these kinds of global conflicts, especially a place as with a history as rich and as symbolically loaded as the nation of Israel. You'll I mean, yeah. of course you're gonna you'll see a lot of that. Well, here's the thing though, Cameron, and just to make this a little weirder, since you 
since you stepped in this one. Um, so we're reading Amos there. right now. Sorry. Yeah, we're reading Amos mm-hmm. right now as a family. And when you go through the minor prophets, um, we're talking about the same land, the same territory, and God being actively involved in the military conflicts that take place within the nations that are involved there, and sometimes using nations against Israel in order to do his will. I mean, that would be Mm -hmm. how many churches like, well, maybe this is the Lord's will for Hamas to do this to, you know, nobody's saying that right now that I, that I've heard. But as you Mm -hmm. read Joel, Amos, Hosea, the whole, I mean, all the minor prophets, there's a sense in which God does what God does. Um, and he uses conflict and these types of things and the nations form their plans. But then Isaiah, the nations are but a drop in the bucket or the men scheme and the Lord laughs. There really is a sense. And so this is, that's not to like develop some sort of sit on your hands and don't worry about it or not be interested in it. It's just to say that of course, yeah. even from your own, if you are a, a, a Christian believer and have some remote knowledge of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, even within that, you should know better than to negate the God factor in all of this. So the question is not whether or not God is good or whether or not God is in control. It's how does he want you to respond to the suffering and brokenness that you see around you? And what kind of person does he want you to be in that? That's an entirely different set of questions than just leaving your TV running eight hours a day with dread music playing and going to bed with the shakes at night because you think the world is coming to an end. So all that I want to say at this point is look to the reality of the, your own resources if you're a believing person and be consistent there and peace is the outcome of that even in the midst of conflict yeah and we will certainly return i think to to this topic i mean we're because we're as we see what develops i think both nathan and i would like to get a gentleman named Stuart McAllister, who i know we both know pretty well i should just call him dad on the podcast It'd be very helpful on on this subject. So that will likely be coming to a future episode. But thank you for for listening to us. We we recognize that this is a tough, this is a difficult topic. We recognize that emotions run very high on on this particular one. And again, we just ask for for your patience and you know be charitable with us. We will make mistakes. We're, we're, we're learning as we go. We've tried to speak carefully here, but we did want to talk about this because obviously this is, this is a key event that everybody is talking about. We're all, we're all concerned about it. So in the meantime, let's be in prayer for, for Israel and for world events. And I think Nathan's words there at the end were, were real challenge to us, but we need to think in those terms as 21st century people, we, we often are very conflicted about the Old Testament. I think we're pretty nervous about it, particularly when we look at the role of the Assyrians, for instance, and the way the Lord used them. That is deeply challenging. When we, or we, when we look at even natural disasters, and the, the, I mean, basically the the judgments of God and the way they're sometimes carried out can are are you know pre- present some cognitive dissonance to us as modern people, which means we should be reading reading the Old Testament as well, (laughs) and pressing into God's word. But we hope this has been helpful to you, and thanks for tuning in. You've been listening, and some of you are watching. Hello? Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. 
Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.